Well, good morning, everyone. Okay. Good news. Uh, we're going to start today with a little accountability for everyone. So it's uh, day, I think it's uh, 282 of the year, and I'm just wondering, uh, how's everyone's Bible reading going? Good? Good. So if you started on your uh, one year through the Bible plan back in January 1, you should be about 75% of the way through your Bibles right now. So we're around week 40, so basically all of this should be read by now, should be around here. If not, uh, now it's time to be picking up the pace. <laughs> no pressure here, but um, you know we're getting close to the end of the year. Um, seriously, like, how, how does this make you feel to see this up here on the, on the board here? Perhaps some awkwardness, a little guilt, a little uh, regret, maybe frustration. Do you find yourself subconsciously checking right now to make sure you're a little... Bible reading plan is stuffed far enough inside the Bible that the person next to you can't see it. Or perhaps some of you are feeling pretty good right now. Like, actually, I wish, I kind of wish I could take it out and show everyone, like, how far, how well I'm doing this year. Okay, I won't push. Oh, we could talk about prayer life too if you want. Like, all those prayer goals you set back in January, how that's going. Uh, but I'll stop before it gets more awkward. Um, but here's why I want to bring this up. Because this week I was reading uh, the Puritan pastor, John Owen. And he uses this example of our personal devotional lives as an example of the way in which we're prone to tie our good works, or lack thereof, to God's favor in our lives, our, 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 our sense of God's favor in our lives. So when we're doing good, hey, check, 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 we feel God's face shining upon us, right? But when we're doing less good, then we feel God's frown instead. But doing this, thinking this way, actually puts all the emphasis on our strength, on our works, on our efforts. In, in a sense, it's, it's really just a form of self-righteousness. The idea being that we can somehow earn our way into God's favor. Not, we're not reading our way into salvation, but, but we're in some sense earning our way into God's favor. And this is a, a very human uh, uh, activity, right? And in fact, what we're going to see in our passage today is that the Israelites tended to do this a lot, minimizing their own sin while, uh, on the one hand, while maximizing their own strengths and gifts and abilities on the other, and all in an effort to somehow kind of earn or merit or deserve uh, their right standing before God. But also in our passage today, in Deuteronomy 9, we're going to catch a little glimpse here of the gospel. We're going to see God's gracious provision for a people trapped in the web of self-righteousness. That God will truly provide for them and work in and through them, even though they have nothing inherent in and of themselves. Nothing that they can bring to the table uh, to earn God's favor. 
So, as we get into our text here, we're Deuteronomy chapter 9, which you, you just had Anthony read the very beginning of. We're going to be looking at most of the chapter, but the first encouragement that I want to give you today is this, to live boldly in full confidence of God's strength at work within you. To live boldly in full confidence of God's strength at work within you. So if you look at the first few verses in chapter 9, here, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Now, apparently, three is the magic number for driving home a point. So Moses says three times in just these first few verses that the road ahead for the Israelites is going to be very difficult. He says, you're about to face nations who are greater and mightier than you are, cities that are great and fortified up to heaven, and people who are great and tall, nations, cities, people, and they're all going to be greater and stronger and taller and mightier and scarier than anything you've seen before. In other words, the odds were completely stacked against them. Now, obviously, we don't have any Anakim anymore, but maybe think about it this way. I like to imagine you know, facing an entire army of men taller than, and bigger and stronger than, than Shaquille O'Neal. I remember him stronger than the top offensive lineman in the NFL and, and, and braver and, and tougher than the fiercest Navy SEALs that you can imagine. Wrap all of that up together, that's the kind of enemy that they were facing. But Moses, he doesn't leave them hanging there, terrified. He goes on to say that their secret weapon was going to be the Lord. So look at verse 3. He says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised to you. Yahweh is going to go over before them. Yahweh, the consuming fire, the destroyer of enemies. Yahweh, the one who subdues all those who would oppose him. I think about it. Generals, they don't usually go into battle shoulder to shoulder with the soldiers on the front lines, right? They're usually directing the war efforts from a safe distance. You know, like in movies, they're in a tent or or like in a nice office building somewhere as far away from the action as possible. But not God. Moses is clear. Yahweh is going to go before them. He's going to lead the charge, blazing the trail. I mean, literally, he's a consuming fire, blazing the trail ahead for them. But this didn't mean the Israelites could just sort of kick back and do nothing. Right? This conquest would still require work, effort, energy. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, uh, He will destroy them, so you shall drive them out and make them perish 
quickly. What the Lord promised, the people still had to bring into being. So God had ordained victory for them, but they still had to literally take up arms and fight. So think about Jericho, right? The battle was the Lord's, but they still had to march all around the city. Or think about the battle of Ai that we're going to read about uh, later in Joshua. Same thing. Victory assured by God, but they still had to pick up their swords and fight. And even today, so much of the Christian life is like that, right? God works, and we work. So God's sovereign purposes are unchangeable, but he still involves us in the process. It's amazing. So think about uh, the Apostle Paul. This is how he describes his ministry, how he does all his work. In Colossians, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he, he's talking about God, all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. Paul toiled, he struggled, he fought, he worked himself to the bone, preaching the gospel, growing and establishing the church. But he did this in and through the power of God working through him. The kingdom of God is something that God himself is building according to his plans and purposes. And we work like alongside him in that process. How, it's, it's just it's amazing to me. But the encouragement is that it means we can live boldly confident in God's strength at work within us and going before us. So, kids, think your grades, your good grades, they are thanks to God at work in you, right? Your successful business efforts are thanks to God at work in you. If you're married, the gift of, of marriage and children, it's all thanks to God's work in your lives, now, yeah, all of these things require immense amounts of effort and energy, right? I think parenting is, is sometimes much harder than starting up a business from scratch. But behind it all lies the clear and unequivocal power of God, sustaining, growing, and developing all of it. Having said all of that, I do wonder, though, if we really believe this to be true, I mean, we say it, but do we really believe it in our hearts? Because the high levels of stress and anxiety that so much of us live with tells me otherwise, right? I mean, there's lots of valid reasons to feel pressure and stress. I mean, school, grades, we talked about the parenting, relationships, finances, politics, the economy, wars around the world. The burdens are numerous for certain. It often feels like uh, we're in one of those bumper car rides at the carnival, right? And <laughs> you're just trying to go in a straight line and you keep, people keep careening into you from all different angles. But the Bible says our God is a consuming fire, a power unmatched by anything else in the entire universe. 
He goes before us in all things at all times, which means there is no situation in your life that he is unaware or uninvolved with. Not a single situation, nothing, that he is somehow unaware of or, or not involved with actively. Now, I'll be the first to admit it doesn't always maybe feel that way. And, and even I end up often worrying far too much about a future I cannot control. But all God really calls me to do is to be faithful to the task in front of me right now. Leave the, the results to him. So he says to the, to the Israelites, go into the promised land. The, the results, those are mine to control. What I need you to do right now is cross the river, to be faithful to what I'm telling you to do, to fight these people. And we need to do the same thing. How do we do this? Well, in John 15, Jesus tells the disciples, I am the vine. You are the branches, right? He's the life-giving, life-sustaining force at work within us. He's, he's the root, the sap, the, the strength, the power, the energy. We, us, we're, we're just the, the branches. <laughs> we derive everything from him. And so what are we called to do? Jesus says, to abide, abide in me. Because apart from him, we can truly do nothing. Case in point, the Israelites are going to live this out over and over again. <laughs> Attempting to do things apart from Christ, apart from God's work, and ending up in an abysmal mess. Okay, great. All that's good. What does abiding look like? Well, honestly, for, for many of us, I think we don't have to look much further than our our phones, our relationship with our phones. You want a picture of what abiding looks like? When we're bored, right, we turn to our phones for amusement. When we're stressed out, we look to our phones for reassurance. When we're lost, we look to our phones for guidance. When we're feeling uncertain, we look to our phones for direction. When we're feeling down, we look to our phones for comfort. When we're lonely, we look to our phones for connection. Our phones are the first thing we see when we wake up in the morning. Our phones are the last thing we see before we close our eyes to go to bed at night. Should I keep going? I'm not here to talk about our addiction to technology, but, but, but this, our relationship with our phones is, is an image for me of the, of the kind of deep, intimate, ongoing, moment-by-moment -moment connection that that Jesus calls us to when he says, abide with me. Well, next time you pick up your phone, I want, I want you to think, what needs to change in my life to help me connect more intimately with Jesus in that way? So that I can then enjoy the confidence and the, the peace and the security and the assurance that comes from experiencing God's power within me and trusting that he is that consuming fire going before me. And I can leave the uncertain and unknowing, unknowable future to him. Well, now the second uh, encouragement I want to offer to you today is, is to rest in the righteousness of Christ. 
So moving on in our text, as we look here in, uh, in verse, verses 4 through 6, Moses says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of the righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are stubborn people. It's like, ouch, (laughs) that hurt, Moses. Three times in three consecutive verses, Moses tells the people, it is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. Clearly, God is concerned that the Israelites might think that they are somehow morally superior to the Canaanites and therefore more deserving of this promised land of milk and honey and God's blessing. But God goes to great lengths here to let them know this gift has nothing to do with any inherent sort of goodness that they might suppose they have. In fact, Moses says, look, this is, I want to be really clear here. There are two reasons why you're getting this land. The first is because I'm being faithful to the promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My covenant, I'm being faithful to my word. And secondly, Because I'm a righteous judge who punishes wickedness, evil, and sin. And the Canaanites are wicked people, so I'm driving them out. And that's it. No, there's nothing in there about the Israelites and their awesomeness. Right? In fact, Moses says, verse 6, you're stubborn people. Now, self-righteousness is often really hard to pick up in our own lives. Right? No, nobody thinks they're self-righteous. Not, not really. Let me give you a little example from my life. Earlier this week, I found myself starting to pray. Praying, great thing. And I start praying and I start saying, Lord, I know I haven't earned this. I know I don't deserve this. And then I was about to ask God for something. And I stopped because I was convicted by what I had just said. Now, technically, the words that I said were good. Like, I, I don't deserve anything. I haven't earned anything. Nothing wrong with the words coming out of my mouth. But my heart was in the wrong place. And I realized, you know, I think, I think I'm trying to butter up God right now. <laughs> I, I'm just being honest with you here. I was like, I've had a bad week spiritually. I'm feeling a little guilty and frustrated with myself right now. And as a result, I don't really feel like I'm in a place to be asking God for anything. But kind of like a kid bargaining with their parent, like at a toy store or something. I'm like, 
you know, maybe I can get on good, God's good side if I sort of preemptively like, confess my, my weakness and, and then maybe he'll get over on my good side and, and then I can, you know, earn his favor and then he'll be more likely to give me what I want or what I need. But it gets messier than that because then I have to ask myself, why am I only saying that this week? Like, like, like why am I only saying today, oh Lord, I know, I, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned it. I mean, what does that imply about all the other times that I pray? And I don't say that, that I, that I somehow think at some deep level I probably do deserve or earn uh, for God to respond to my prayer in the way that I want him to right now. I mean, I would never say that out loud. But God was doing a work on my heart this week, and I realized, gosh, at some level, I think I really do feel that way. And it was highlighted because this week, I really didn't feel it. And I was like, oh man, I think that means those other weeks, I had slipped into a place where it's feeling that way. So how is this self-righteousness? Because in both these situations, I'm trusting in my own works, my own effort, my own good deeds to somehow solicit God's approval. Right, so to recap, when I'm having a good week spiritually, this part of me that sort of begins to feel like good things should start coming my way, like my good works are somehow adding something to the equation. But the flip side, that means on bad weeks, there's a part of me that feels like God's probably not going to give me good things this week. Like he's probably going to start withholding things. Like, like my lack of good works or actually my bad works are now kind of detracting from the equation. And in both cases, I'm saying God's favor is reliant on my works. My good works in the one case, my bad works on the other. And both ways of thinking are wrong. Do you see how subtly self-righteousness can weasel its way into our lives, right? Think back to the parable of the, uh, the, 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 the Pharisee and the tax collector that we heard at the beginning of the sermon. You know, honestly, I don't think any of us think, oh yes, the Pharisee, clearly, that's me. Like, I'm a self-righteous. Thank you, Jesus, for pointing that out. No, we're all convinced we're the tax collector, and even in making that assumption, we reveal something of the true nature of our hearts, that we're blind, horribly blind to our own sin. Why are we so blind? I think in part because we're continuously judging ourselves against the wrong standard, comparing ourselves to the wrong person. So the Pharisee is comparing himself to the tax collector, the sort of Good Jonathan is comparing himself to the, 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 the bad Jonathan, right? Or we look around our workplace or community or our social media and say in our hearts, obviously never out loud, but in our hearts we're thinking, you know, I am definitely better than most of those people. But our passage today, Moses kind of pulls back the curtain on all that. Right? The Israelites, they could undoubtedly have looked at the Canaanites and said, you know what, compared to them, we're pretty dis- decent people. I mean, we did not participate in child sacrifice. We are not wicked. Look, God even calls them wicked, <laughs> right? They're the wicked ones. That must be why he's giving us the land. 
But Moses totally refutes this way of thinking, repeats himself three times over. You're not righteous. You're not righteous. You're not righteous. I want to make sure you get this point. Why? Because they're using the wrong measuring stick. The point of comparison was not the Canaanites. It's God, right? He's the only standard against which we should be measuring ourselves. The Holy One of Israel. And compared to Him, there is no one righteous. Not even one. So, does that mean all hope is lost? That I'm just a judgy, horrible, self-righteous mess? (laughs) That may be true, but... It doesn't mean all hope is lost, right? Because thanks be to God, there is hope for all of us in Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, for our sake, for your sake, and for my sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Christ, you and I might become the righteousness of God. You see, you have no inherent righteousness to bring to the table. None. But far from being something negative, that should actually be a tremendous relief. Because it means you're freed from the need to constantly work to earn or merit God's favor. Do you see that? You're freed from the exhausting work of trying to prove your worth to God constantly, week in, week out. You're freed from that because in Christ, you are now the righteousness of God. And instead, you can rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many, all of us, you and I, the many will be made righteous. Not through our efforts, but through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis, and that basis alone, that you can then enter boldly into God's presence, regardless of your own sense of spiritual goodness or badness, trusting fully in Christ to be your righteousness. Well, the third encouragement that I want to share with you today is really more of a challenge, and it comes from our last section here. Um in uh, chapter 9. Uh, we're looking primarily here at verses 6 through 24. And these verses, most of the rest of the chapter is really just an extended example of the rebelliousness and the stubbornness and the wickedness and the evil uh, of the Israelites themselves. It's, it's evidence to support his claim in verse 6. You're a stubborn people. Let me give you an example. Now, we talked in previous weeks about the key phrase in Deuteronomy, remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget. It's repeated over and over again, and most of the time it's because Moses wants to remind them of all the good things 
that God has done in their lives. Remember and don't forget God's provision. Remember and don't forget God's care. Remember and don't forget God's miracles. Remember and don't forget all the ways that he has worked in your life to bring you out of slavery in Egypt. But it's not just that we're quick to downplay or minimize God's work in our lives, and so we need to be reminded of that. But we also are so quick to forget how sinful we can really be. So look at the text in verse 7. It says, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, even at, um, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. You know the, the rest of this story, right? So Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the tablets of stone written with the law on them. It's this, this beautiful picture of this moment of God sealing his covenant with his people. But no sooner as Moses receives these tablets, then God tells him, uh, you need to get down off the mountain because your people have fallen into idolatry. And in fact, God says, I'm ready to destroy them. Moses, he steps into action. He comes down off the mountain. He symbolically smashes the tablets on the ground, destroys the golden calf, intercedes in prayer and fasting on behalf of, of the people and Aaron, and rescues them. Now, why include this long, I, I mean, I just read the beginning, but this long uh, retelling of such a horrible moment in their history? And as if that isn't enough, why would they follow it up with four more examples in verses 22 through 24 of their stubborn rebellion and failure? I mean, we'd never rehearse someone else's sins in public like this, right? I mean, in our families, we work really hard to practice forgiveness, meaning I'm not going to rehash this anymore. It's gone. It's forgotten. Uh, it's wiped clean. Right? We, but chapter 9 here is not like a model for us to follow in our, our families or churches. So publicly shaming people for their sin. Chapter 9 here is a reminder that the same heart-corrupting sin that drove the Canaanites out of the land was also at work in the Israelites and left untended left unnoticed, undealt with, that same sin would eventually wreak the same kind of havoc in their lives. Look, the incident with the golden calf is, is horrendous. Think about it. At the very moment when God is, 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 is uh, promising uh, the covenant, right? the people are down in the valley forging an idol out of the gold they've plundered from the Egyptians. As Moses is worshiping God up on the mountaintop, they're down in the valley worshiping an idol. It will be like cheating on your spouse on your wedding night. It's that awful. Now, if you're 
at all like me may be thinking, well, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not like that. Right? I haven't made idols. I haven't worshipped them. In fact, all things considered, I'm actually a pretty decent chap. Right? I, I don't, generally speaking, I, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, murder, covet, I go to church, I'm nice to other people, I give, I serve, I try to forgive others, I'm, I'm patient, loving, kind. I praise the Lord for all of that. No sarcasm. Really, I do. Keep striving towards holiness. It is important. I pray, we pray as pastors, that the God of peace would continue to sanctify you through and through so that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, none of us are as, as evil, as bad, as wicked as we might be apart from Christ. I'm not trying to argue otherwise. But there's a really good reason why these negative examples are included in the Bible. And I think the Apostle Paul lays it out for us best in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, now these things happen to them. And in that context, he's talking about the rebellion of the Israelites. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Whenever I read this verse, I think of one of those highlight reels you know, that you've seen on, on YouTube or something of all those people celebrating victory too early. You know, the sports videos, have you seen those? Like the guy who's, who's running and then drops the ball on the one-yard line or the sprinter who's like, oh yeah, I got this, and then someone comes from behind at the last second. Sin works this, that way in our lives, right? Creeping up on us slowly when we least expect it, when we're most convinced that we have everything covered, when we're headed into the end zone with apparently nobody else even near to us, and then it's like, wham, safety hits us from out of nowhere. <laughs> and so Paul says, so take heed lest you fall. That's why we need to keep talking about sin, even after we become Christians, Right? Not, not, not to pile on guilt and shame, not to berate ourselves and to beat ourselves up like, oh, I'm such a horrible, wicked, evil, sinful person. Not to diminish the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We need to talk about sin because Satan uh, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. It's a real threat. And a keen awareness of your own sin is part of the first line of defense against his attacks. Right? A keen awareness of your sin, it keeps you alert to temptations, alert to danger, alert to every potential pothole in the road ahead. Look, if you know your weaknesses, if you confess them, if you... If you if you ask for accountability from others and helping to guard against them, if you seek God's strength continuously to fight against them, 
then you have a much better chance of avoiding the kind of catastrophic failures we read over and over again in the Bible. And we see continuously in those around us. But here's the really good news. God doesn't leave you to fight this battle alone. We saw that already at the beginning of our chapter. And Peter says the same thing, right? We're to resist our enemies, standing firm in the faith, but not in our own strength. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you. Will himself make you strong. Will himself make you firm and steadfast, immovable, in and through his power at work within you. A keen awareness of our own sin helps us to take care, to take heed lest we fall. I want to close our sermon today by reading to you actually a prayer. I didn't write this, but this is a prayer written by an 18th century British priest named Augustus Toplady. Toplady. Kind of a weird name. Just own that. But really, uh, he wrote a significant amount on Christ's work in our lives. And this beautiful prayer. And as we continue Consider our very human tendency towards trying to do everything in our own strengths, minimizing the power of sin, trying to add to the righteousness of Christ with our own efforts and good deeds. I want you to think about this prayer as a word of challenge, but also a word of encouragement to all of us as we seek to resist self-righteousness and lean on the righteousness and power of Christ. So would you pray with me? And I'll put it on the screen here so you can see as well. But let me read this to you as a prayer. O Lord, with what shall we come before you, O Lord? Or bow ourselves in your presence, O you, most high God. Cause us to to come unto you in faith, mentioning no other name, pleading no other righteousness, and trying in no other atonement than the name, righteousness, and atonement of your blessed Son and our adorable mediator, Jesus Christ. In him we desire to be found. Through him we hope for favor with you and acceptance in your sight. Blessed be your goodness for the mercies of the day, for the blessings of your providence, the comforts of your spirit, and the privileges that we enjoy. Amen.